Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly and most earnestly ask of you, Lord, that as we reopen your holy scriptures, that the hearing of them proclaimed would not be for any of us in vain, but we pray that by the power, by the very unction of the Holy Spirit, we will hear your word today effectually. And we therefore trust in you, Lord, that it will be so delivered effectually. And thereby it will come to us the teaching thereof in the most fitly spoken, timely, seasonal way that will be fitly framed for every heart here today. We ask these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to take the word of God and let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As we will consider this morning what I am calling the craving of the Christian heart. The craving of the Christian heart. Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse 1 to verse 6, verses 1 to 6 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so reads the infallible inerrant word of the living, eternal God. In 1999, I read a book that changed my whole perspective on Christian fasting because it helped me to see with utter clarity what the Bible actually teaches about fasting. The book was entitled, A Hunger for God. It was written by John Piper. The most compelling and gripping portion of this book, however, was in the introduction. In fact, I'll just say that the introduction alone is worth the price of the book. But it really wasn't the introduction as a whole that captivated me. But one section which Piper called, God's greatest adversaries are his gifts. Well, this part of the introduction was within the context of Christian fasting, yet it was connected to far more than fasting. It exposed a number of things in our daily lives which we would not give any thought to as competing with or rivaling what Piper identifies as a hunger for God. Yet it is those things which we call good or even necessary that can work very subtly 
to usurp and replace the cry of our new heart as Christians, which is for God and God alone. Listen to how John Piper unpacks this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated movie, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Jesus said, some people hear the word of God and a desire is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. In another place, he said, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. Well, with this in mind, I want to turn your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. This one verse of scripture is actually part of a larger section in Matthew 5, specifically verses 3 through 12, and has been designated as the Beatitudes. Moreover, the Beatitudes form an introduction, if you will, to a sermon which was preached by our Lord Jesus and is recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We know this sermon as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as regarding the Beatitudes, what are they exactly, and how should we understand their application to us as Christians? By definition, the Beatitudes are declarative descriptions of the new nature resident in every Christian, and the new life which proceeds from that nature. Thus, when studying the Beatitudes, one must understand that these singular descriptions are actually giving us snapshots of the Christian life as a whole. Furthermore, the Beatitudes also have a definite order and sequence in how Jesus presents them. This means that there is a logical succession and progression following each Beatitude. Those who are poor in spirit will be those who mourn. And those who mourn will be those who are meek and on it goes. And yet at the same time, because of the present tense verbs that Jesus uses for each of these Beatitudes, each of these spiritual qualities will be a lifetime characteristic for the believer in Christ. Now, since we'll be looking at the fourth beatitude, it would be helpful for us to see this beatitude from the perspective of the first three which have preceded it. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus teaches us that a Christian is someone who is 
poor in spirit, mourns over their sin, and is meek. Let's consider the meaning of each of these very briefly in turn. First, by poor in spirit, our Lord is describing the initial and basic self-realization in every true believer that they've come to see that apart from God, they are spiritually bankrupt and impoverished. But with this realization of spiritual poverty, a Christian is also someone whose heart breaks with contrition and godly sorrow over their sinful state. Thus, Jesus describes a believer as one who mourns, and this is the second beatitude. In the heart of a true Christian is a genuine sadness over what he has done by sinning against God. But having seen their spiritual state for what it really is apart from God, the broken-hearted believer becomes, by God's grace, the meek believer. That is, his heart toward God is now pliant. It is yielding. It is teachable. Horrified by his sin and fleeing from it, a Christian is finished with all he is and gives himself completely over to God in humble submission. This is the grace of meekness. And like poverty of spirit and spiritual mourning, it is a fruit of the Spirit of God that is initiated in conversion and progresses on in growth throughout the Christian life. However, this is not all a Christian is humble, broken, and meek. There's also within a true believer in Christ an insatiable appetite which they never had before. An appetite which our Lord describes here in Matthew 5 and verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now from this passage, there are three questions I want us to raise. First, What is the meaning of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Second, what are the tests which identify this spiritual hunger and thirst? And then third, what is God's promise to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? To begin with, then, let's consider the first of these practically important questions. What is the meaning of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? The best way to answer this question is by defining the terms Jesus employs here in this beatitude, starting with the most significant word, the word righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is our Lord referring to by this word righteousness? Well, we should first underscore the fact that Jesus uses the word righteousness with some frequency in the Sermon on the Mount. And by seeing how our Lord uses it and applies it throughout this sermon will actually give us a clue as to how we need to understand its usage in our present text. For instance, here in chapter 5 and verse 10, we're told that as Christians, we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 20 of chapter 5, Jesus warns us that if our righteousness does not supersede the righteousness displayed by the scribes and Pharisees, then we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Moreover, in chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus assumes that his followers will actually be practicing righteousness. But finally, and most essentially, in chapter 6 and verse 33, Our Lord urges us to be a people who seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. Now, based on these examples of how our Lord uses the word righteousness in the rest of this sermon, what can we begin to understand about this term as it is used in Matthew 5, 6? Well, first and foremost, it is a righteousness that is not our own. It is not, therefore, a self-righteousness like that of the scribes and Pharisees. This righteousness actually proceeds from God as a gift to the believer. In fact, the very language of our text points to this. Notice that the Christian is someone who is hungering and thirsting for a righteousness which only God can satisfy. When Jesus says that this hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied, the verb translated satisfied is a future passive. This means that the satisfaction of this righteousness is something, listen, something done to us, thus implying that this righteousness is outside of us. We cannot produce it. We cannot achieve it on our own. Secondly, this righteousness is a conformity to God's standard, which is his divine law. When Jesus warns us that if our righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will then not enter the kingdom of heaven, this warning comes on the heels of our Lord's admonition that we must not compromise the smallest commandment of God's law, nor teach others to do the same. Hence, the righteousness a Christian hungers and thirsts for is that righteousness which is the faithful and obedient expression of God's law. It is a righteousness that conforms to God's holy standard. Thirdly, it is a righteousness that will be displayed in the life of a Christian. How so? Well, as we read and study the rest of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, we see plainly the manifestation of this righteousness. And I'm going to give you several examples here from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We see the manifestation of this righteousness in showing mercy to others, pursuing purity, forgiving and not retaliating, walking with integrity, loving your enemies, avoiding the hypocrisy of external religion, hallowing God's name, serving God and not money, refusing to worry over earthly needs, but instead seeking first God's rule and his holy standard, judging rightly and not self-righteously, treating others the way you want them to treat you, guarding oneself from false prophets, and above all, obeying whatever commands Christ has called you to do. Now by each of these citations, which show how righteousness is manifested in the life of a believer from the Sermon on the Mount, it should be very evident that the righteousness that a Christian hungers and thirsts for is a life that pleases God. It is a life that pleases God. It is a life that honors God and glorifies him from what our heart desires to how we treat others. This is the righteousness a Christian craves. But if we tease this out in a more theological category, we can say this. The righteousness that a Christian hungers and thirsts after is a righteousness that is free from sin, free from its power, liberated from the very desire 
to sin. It is therefore a righteousness that first puts a believing sinner in a right relationship with God, where he's no longer under God's wrath and the curse of God's law, but now he has a righteousness which God approves because it has been provided by God himself. And the reception of this righteousness comes to the believer through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It is thus an imputed righteousness. This means that it is the righteousness of Christ himself transferred to the account of the believer through faith. However, this righteousness is not only imputed by faith in Christ, it is also implanted in the new nature and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a righteousness that grows through the process of sanctification. And it is this sanctifying righteousness which Matthew 5 and verse 6 is essentially describing as what a Christian hungers and thirsts after. And as we have just seen, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount bears this out. So then to be sure we have our theological categories in order, the imputed righteousness refers to our justification which is a once-for-all act of God to the believing sinner. Now listen very closely to this. We are declared righteous by God through faith in Christ because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account. That is justification. And this is our unchanging eternal position before God, a position held and sustained not by our merits, but by the merits of Jesus Christ alone. But here in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus speaks of a righteousness which his followers hunger and thirst for every day of their lives. The verbs translated here, hunger and thirst, are present participles. Hence our Lord is describing an ongoing, perpetual, daily hunger and thirst. So while the imputed righteousness we receive in justification can certainly be implied in this verse, yet this is not the explicit righteousness that Christ is referring to. And again, the context of Matthew chapters 5 through 7 bears this out. So let me say it to you this way. As a Christian, I do not daily hunger to be justified by God. That is not a daily hunger, because at the moment of my conversion to Christ, I was justified completely, completely. Thus, my positional righteousness is perfect and unchanging right now. Now, this should be very encouraging to all of us as Christians. Understand, I cannot be any more justified by God in Christ than what I am now, than what I am right now cannot be any more justified. However, however, listen closely. In my sanctification, there is a practical righteousness which is not yet perfected, but in the process of growth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is this practical righteousness which I as a Christian long and ache and crave for every day of my life in my words and thoughts and motives and affections and behavior, 
I am not as righteous as I hunger and thirst to be. Positionally, in Christ, I am perfectly righteous. Positionally. But in my daily practice, I fall short. I fall short of God's holy standard unceasingly. This is why every true believer in Christ can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, and verses 21 to 24, listen to this. Paul said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What Paul is testifying to in Romans chapter 7 is the normal Christian life. Do you hear me? The normal Christian life. A life of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. A life that has an ongoing hunger and thirst for righteousness, but is repeatedly disheartened, discouraged, and frustrated by the nagging downdrag of indwelling sin. The hunger and thirst to be righteous, to please God, is always there. It's always there. But listen, our reach exceeds our grasp. Our reach always exceeds our grasp. Because this righteousness that we crave is ultimately a perfect conformity to the image of Christ, which in this lifetime we will not see completely fulfilled. But of course the main point that we're after is the meaning of the term righteousness in Matthew 5, 6. So, so to sum it up, we can say this. The righteousness which the Christian is ever hungering and thirsting for is to be positively holy. To be positively holy. As a believer in Christ, our constant yearning is to obey God, not just in part, but in the whole of our lives. That is the constant hunger and thirst of a true believer. And therefore to be like Christ, because that's really what we're saying here. It is to be like Christ. This is the righteousness that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 5, 6. It is the practical righteousness worked out in our daily sanctification. But as we look further at this verse, we need to also consider these terms to hunger and thirst. To hunger and thirst. Now think about these words. In the heart of a true Christian, he or she is not casual about righteousness. 
they are not indifferent. They are not apathetic. Furthermore, they are not cold or detached to the standard of pleasing and obeying God. Rather, as part of the fruit of the new birth, there is a deep, agonizing, painful, profound longing to obey, please, and honor God in all things. If a true believer in Christ is to be anything in his or her life, they will not be satisfied unless their life bears the perfect image of Christ. They therefore hunger and thirst always for this righteousness. Illustrating this hunger and thirst, consider the picture Martin Lloyd-Jones applied. Lloyd-Jones said, to hunger and thirst is to be like a man who wants a position. He is restless. He cannot keep still. He is working and plotting. He thinks about it and dreams about it. His ambition is the controlling passion of his life. To hunger and thirst is like that. The man hungers and thirsts after that position. Or it is like a longing for a person. There's always great hunger and thirst in love. If they are separated, he is not at rest until they are together again. Now, taking these two illustrations of Lloyd-Jones, we can compose this picture of the Christian life based on Matthew 5, 6 in this way. Okay, listen closely. To be righteous, to live a life pleasing God, pleasing God, to God in every way, conforming to his holy standard. That is the driving pursuit. That is the supreme ambition of the Christian heart. Everything a Christian does is deeply conscious of this desperate need to be more like Christ. Hence in all his words, thoughts, and actions... To grow in righteousness. Listen, it is the reference point. It is the reference point of his life as a whole. The life of a Christian. So what then does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It is the singular passion of the new nature in every single Christian. The singular passion of the new nature in every Christian that yearns, listen, that yearns at the deepest level of their soul to be like Christ in all his ways and therefore completely conform to the standard of God's holy law. That is the single drive and ambition in the new nature of a true believer in Jesus Christ. But we need to ask the question is such a hunger and thirst true of us? Does Matthew 5 and verse 6 describe us? Does it give an accurate picture of our own lives? Well, answering these questions leads us to our next major point of study. What are the tests that identify this spiritual hunger and thirst? What are the tests? Well, the first test begins with our initial conversion to Christ. 
Are we, fin- are we finished altogether with our own righteousness and are we trusting completely to the righteousness of Christ as our only acceptance before God? That's the first test. So when a sinner comes to faith in Christ, he comes with an awakened hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not his own. He throws himself entirely on Christ and clings by faith to his perfect righteousness that alone is his salvation. This was the great confession of Paul the Apostle in Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 9. Listen to this. Paul wrote, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now, beloved, I just simply ask you this question. Is this confession of the Apostle Paul your own confession? Is this your own confession? Are you trusting only in the righteousness of Christ as your justification before God? Understand this. Understand how critical this question is. If you are not trusting only in the righteousness of Christ as your justification before God, my friend, you are not saved. You are not saved. You're not a Christian. It's just really that simple. You're not a Christian. So search yourself. Search yourself. Are you trusting only in the righteousness of Christ as your justification before God? See, that question ties directly in with my favorite evangelistic question what confidence do you have that God accepts you it's it's that question but put in a different way what confidence do you have that God accepts you so that's the first test here's the second test the second test that identifies our spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness is this are we avoiding those things in our life that would be opposed to this righteousness? Are we avoiding those things in our life that would be opposed to this righteousness? If my supreme ambition is to be more like Christ, then I'm going to resist and reject anything that would impede and hinder this pursuit. This means, first of all, that we will flee from those things which are blatantly evil and wicked. This would include such things as lying, adultery, murder, stealing, slander, greed, pride, arrogance, gossip, and idolatry. That's just to name a few. That's not even exhaustive. In fact, if you wanted to, you could just catalog the entire list of Galatians 5.19, which describes what is called the works of the flesh. So, this is a critical test. If I'm truly hungering, truly thirsting 
after this righteousness that our Lord says is true of his people, then I will be fleeing from those things that are blatantly evil and wicked. But second of all, we'll also avoid those things that will dull our appetite for righteousness. We will avoid those things that will dull our appetite for righteousness. Now, understand, these are not sinful in themselves. But they can captivate our attention to the point that our hunger and thirst for righteousness begins to greatly decrease and falter. This is what we considered in the beginning of our study from John Piper. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. Hence, if I, if I find myself spending more time in pursuit of cultivating earthly treasures and delights, then I'll quickly discover my appetite for the things of God has weakened and waned. And I dare say that's probably where many Christians are. That's probably where, where, they, where they find themselves living. You know? The problem is not pornography. The problem is Alabama football. Especially after last night. I will not go any further. But anyway, <laughs> I had to somehow get that in. I usually don't do that, but the day after. So if my hunger and thirst for righteousness is what it should be, then I will not allow anything to hinder that passion. So I had to repent after last night and, and a whole season. Test number three. Are we actively pursuing righteousness? Are we actively pursuing righteousness? So listen to these questions that I'm going to ask you. What are we doing to grow and mature in the fruit of the Spirit, as a for instance. What are we doing to grow and mature? Do we need greater maturity, for instance, in the love of Christ? Do we need to clothe ourselves in greater meekness, humility, and patience? What about self-control? If we're driven by a hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we'll be doing those things necessary to cultivate the expansion and growth for those spiritual qualities that manifest the righteousness of Christ. Let's tease this out with a more practical consideration. To actively pursue righteousness means that I will apply the means of grace God has provided that I may grow in righteousness. Now, what are these means of grace? What are they? Well, in my private life, in my private life, it is the reading and study of Scripture combined with prayer and communion with God. And let me just add to that, that should be our daily habit. That should be our daily habit. You don't ever compromise that. That should be every day. You fight for that. But what about in our public life? Well, in our public life, it is gathering every Lord's Day for the assembled call to worship God through the word of God, being read, sung, and proclaimed. It is also making concerted efforts to be in fellowship with God's people for mutual edification, admonition, and instruction. It's also preparing and attending the Lord's Supper like we'll be doing today. And further, when the church gathers to pray together, a Christian pursuing righteousness will be 
will be there with eagerness. With eagerness. The point is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and listen to this. Lloyd-Jones said, the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is the man who never misses an opportunity of being in those certain places where people seem to find this righteousness. This is why you don't this is why you do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now we have several people that are not intentionally doing so, but because of providential circumstances which they cannot help and it was not in their control, they're not here. So there are legitimate reasons, but we all know that not every reason is legitimate. So listen to what Lloyd-Jones said one more time. The man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is the man who never misses an opportunity of being in those certain places where people seem to find this righteousness. Hence, we strive to be faithful every week to the gathering of God's people, the church. The final test I offer you is this. Do you delight Do you delight in the very idea of a life lived in conformity to God's holy standard? When you you think about the Christian life as a life shaped and molded into the perfect image of Jesus Christ, does that just make your heart sing? Does it bring you pleasure? Does it ignite in you a fire That is all consuming for the Christian who is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. There is nothing sweeter. There's nothing more joyful than a life that pleases and glorifies God in all things. Because this is your hunger and thirst. This is that controlling ambition and drive in you as a believer in Christ. This is the cry of your new heart. Well, on the heels of this last test of our spiritual hungering and thirsting, it's only fitting that we move to our final point of study with this major question. What is God's promise to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? And returning to our text here in Matthew 5, 6, our Lord says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, For they shall be, what? Satisfied. For they shall be satisfied. What God promises to his people as they hunger and thirst for righteousness is a full and complete satisfaction. In fact, the verb translated here as satisfied comes from a Greek word that that was often used to describe feeding animals until they wanted no more. That is, they were permitted to eat till they were completely full. And hence, satisfied. So in this context, Jesus is guaranteeing that our passion and pursuit to live a life in perfect conformity to God's righteous standard, to be like Christ, will be satisfied to the full. 
Now, of course, at present, this kind of satisfaction for perfect righteousness is something we only know in piecemeal. On the one hand, there is a, there's a full satisfaction that comes with the assurance that our standing before God is grounded in the imputed righteousness of Christ our Lord. Knowing that we're no longer under the wrath of God and his just condemnation for our sins due to the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, that does bring to our hearts as a Christian a complete satisfaction. But on the other hand, as we've already seen, in our day-to-day sanctification, there is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that is not satisfied to the full. This doesn't mean that that we experience no satisfaction in our sanctification, but it does point to the reality of what I've already called the already and the not yet. It's Paul the Apostle in Romans 7, agonizing over his remaining sinfulness, frustrated over the fact that his life as a whole is not yet perfected in righteousness. But even while he is expressing this frustration, listen, he is not drowning in despair. For on the heels of his cry is a wretched man and his question as to who will deliver him from his fallen body racked with sin, Romans 7, 24, he answers his own question. He answers his own question with his blessed assurance. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the implication of this statement? Paul is looking to the blessed hope of every single Christian. That there is a day coming when we shall know and experience the full and final deliverance of all our sinfulness. And this final deliverance of sin will be the completion of our sanctification which Romans 8.29 articulates in these incredible words, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. The perpetual hunger and thirst we have for perfect righteousness in our daily walk will one day be realized as we are brought by God's power into perfect conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And the moment this transformation takes place in glory, in that moment, think about this, I mean, it's really amazing. In that moment, all our hungering and all our thirsting for righteousness will finally be completely satisfied. Completely satisfied. Satisfied to the full. And what will this be like? The Apostle John expressed it in this way in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He writes this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, but we know, now see, we know, that's, that's assurance there, that's language of assurance, But we know that when he appears, he referring to Christ, when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 
Take in those words for a moment. Wow. When Jesus returns, he will transform, Philippians 3.21 says, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Which means, beloved, that when we are in glory with Christ, our humanity, our humanity will reflect the perfect humanity of Christ in righteousness. Our humanity will be just like his humanity. We will see him as he is. And we'll see that we're like him. Like him in his perfect humanity. And looking ahead to this perfection, is it any wonder that, that Matthew 5, 6 would make this astounding promise, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall, they shall. That is a word of absolute assurance. They shall be satisfied. It's not maybe. It's not might. It's not could be. They shall be satisfied. Well, as we close our study of Matthew 5, 6, there are matters of enormous importance that we must cover here at the end, but in brief. In the first place, let me ask you this. Does a hunger and thirst for God's righteousness even exist in your heart? Does a hunger and thirst for righteousness even exist does it even exist in your heart? Do you know anything of this godly desire even in its smallest form? The reason I ask this question is because the world is full of people who think they are righteous in themselves. They see themselves as being good and therefore they feel no need at all for Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so I have to ask the question, is this any of you? Is this your position today? If it is, let me assure you by the authority of God's word that all your natural righteousness is nothing but filthy, stinking rags. It is putrid in the sight of a holy God, according to Isaiah 64.6. In fact, the Bible says very plainly in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. None righteous. So what then are you to do in such a hopeless state as that? I remember explaining this to a man years ago that I was witnessing to. And he actually caught, he was an unbeliever, and he was a rank, foul sinner, but he caught what I was explaining here to him. And, and his first response was, well, blankety blank blank, I'm just blankety blank out of luck. He was very foul. But in all his foulness, he caught exactly what the word of God says about his sinful state. And I said, well, do you, do you want to know what to do? <laughs> I mean, there is hope. 
And, of course, I pointed him to Christ. So what, what, what are you to do in such a hopeless state? Well, God's word is very clear, isn't it? Very clear on this matter. Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Simply put, God has provided a perfect righteousness through his son Jesus Christ for every sinner who has faith in Jesus Christ. So I would urge any of you here today who are in this position, flee from your own righteousness that will damn you and fly to Christ alone whose righteousness will save you. In the second place, let me give a very special word of both comfort and challenge to every fellow Christian. Okay, to every fellow Christian. To your comfort, despite the fact that your sanctified righteousness is not yet perfected, however, you are blessed because you hunger after it. You are blessed because you hunger after it. Is this not what our Lord says? Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. So while, so while, dear Christian, your sanctified righteousness has not yet reached perfected glory, yet you, according to Jesus our Lord, you are blessed because there is a hunger there. You're blessed because there is a thirst there. What do I mean by that? The first great evidence that you are a Christian, and listen to this closely for any of you who may be doubting your salvation, the first great evidence that you are a Christian is having the desire to be conformed to God's righteous standard. The fact that you want to be like Christ in all his righteousness is a sign of God's saving grace in your life. And if, if such a desire is more evident then the fruit which should proceed from that desire, be assured of this, God is still working in you in order that you may will and do for his good pleasure. And I say that to your comfort. I say that to your comfort. And remember what I said a few moments ago when we were in Romans 7 for a moment there. Romans 7 teaches all Christians that on this side of glory, before you are yet to be perfected in glory, your reach is always going to exceed what you actually grasp. What did Paul say? Romans 7. The good I will to do, I do not, but the evil I hate, that I do. And by the way, Paul wrote that near the end of his life. Paul wrote that as a very, very mature Christian. Very mature Christian, okay? The great apostle Paul. That's the reason I say it's the normal Christian life. But on the other hand, let me also give you a challenge. If your desire for God's righteousness is true, then there will be an increase of godly fruit 
in your life. You see, by the mere but glorious fact that God is always at work in his people to enable them to will and do for his good pleasure, by the mere fact that that is true, that God is always at work in that way, then a Christian will grow and will increase in their sanctification. What does our Lord teach in Matthew 7 and verse 17? A good tree will bring forth, what kind of fruit? Good fruit. A good tree will bring forth good fruit. So if you claim to have been a Christian for, say, several years, then there will be an evident progress of growth in your character. You should be a far more godly person than what you were 10 years ago. It's called growth, maturity. It's like the question that I posed yesterday to a candidate for the eldership. I was in Georgia for most of yesterday. I was chairing an ordination council for a candidate for the eldership for one of our sister churches in our association. And I had to compose all the questions and outlines, everything for the, for the ordination council to to basically interview, though I'm sure at some points the brother felt he was being interrogated, but nevertheless. One of the first questions I raised to him, though, in the interview was, what progress have you made in the graces of the Spirit? What progress have you made in the graces of the Spirit? That's important, especially for this man who is on the cusp of being ordained as an elder in this local church. Because I reminded him, according to Hebrews 13, verse 7, God commands the church members to consider the outcome of your conduct and imitate your faith. No pressure, right? The church is to imitate your faith. So what progress has been made in your faith, in your life, since you have become a Christian? He had to really think about it, which was a good sign. That was a good sign. But he did. He thought carefully. And he offered, he offered some examples. Now, thankfully, the brother who was going to be, who, who is the pastor of this church, he could be and bear witness to progress that he had seen since his brother has been a member of that church. Of course, probably one of the best witnesses to this brother's faith would have been to interview his wife. But she was not there. But nevertheless, it's a legitimate question. And it's a question that's not just to a candidate for the eldership. Friend, it's a question to all of us as Christians. Since you have been born again, since you've come to faith in Christ, what progress of growth has happened in your Christian character? I grant... I grant there can be seasons of backsliding into sin. I grant that as Christians. I mean, that's, look at the church of Laodicea. Look at the church of Ephesus in Revelation, okay? These are churches. They had problems. Look at the Corinthian church, for goodness sakes. So there can be real seasons of serious backsliding into sin. But, but, 
This is important. If you're a true Christian, if you're a true believer, there will always be a renewing toward repentance. Always. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You may have strayed from the sheep pen, but it won't be for that long. You'll hear your shepherd's voice. You will return. You will come back. If you're truly one of his sheep. So beloved, let's take this charge and let's take this challenge to heart. Where can you improve and mature the most right now in your sanctification? Now, some of you might be smart and say, well, everywhere. Okay, granted. We're not yet perfected. But surely there's got to come to your mind right now an area that perhaps the Lord himself has put his finger on in your life. And the Lord has said, deal with this. Deal with this. So, what in your life needs to be put to death and what needs to expand in growth? Is there anything impeding your hunger and thirst for righteousness? If there is, then, then today, not tomorrow, tomorrow never comes, today, get rid of it today. Get rid of it today. And let this be, let this be your, personal, your personal benediction. By God's grace and power, working in me as one of his people, may I proceed from this day forward to pursue the likeness of Christ in my character with a revived passion that will make this holy ambition the chief above all others. Let that be your benediction today. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is an awesome and holy thing, Lord, before us today when we consider from your word what it truly means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we thank you, Father, for how this truth and the teaching coming from it has awakened us, has convicted us, has humbled us, has brought us to see things perhaps that we have not yet seen in our lives as your people. Things that we need to mortify, things we need to, to put on as a new creation in Christ. But Lord, our earnest cry to you today is that is that where such a hunger and thirst has weakened, where it has waned in any of our lives as your people, Father, we plead with you for a revival of that hunger and thirst. A true renewing of that hunger and thirst for righteousness 
where our greatest aim, our greatest goal, our greatest ambition in all of life, Lord, will be to be more like Christ and that in all things. And how we think, how we feel, what motivates us, drives us, how we speak and our conduct, that that will be our highest pursuit. And yet, Lord, we know and we confess that this has to be a work that you're working in us already. And so we trust in you and and we absolutely rely upon you, Lord, for the working of your sanctifying grace, empowering us to this end. That as you have predestined us to be conformed to the perfect image of your eternal son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that there will be no greater aim in all of our life than that. And so we will lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and and fixing our eyes on Jesus. We will run with endurance the race that is set before us, Father. We trust in you even now, even this very day for such grace to this end and we thank you for it. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And amen.